Let's go ahead and open up a prayer tonight. Lord, we just come in Jesus' name through his blood, and I thank you for this time in the word. I thank you for an open heaven that's here, your glory that's here, Holy Spirit to move in power. I thank you, Lord, even as I'm speaking tonight, that your Holy Spirit move powerfully upon all, all of us, all those that are going to be listening to this, watching this, whether it's live, whether it's a recording. I thank you, Lord, for this going, the Holy Spirit moving upon all of us to give us good soil of hearts and minds and lives, and that our eyes, anointed eyes and ears to see and hear maybe what we couldn't, anointing our minds to be able to understand things maybe we didn't understand before because it's by the Holy Spirit the Lord said would lead us into all truth and teach us all things. And Lord, I thank you for your word going out as, as living seeds sown into good soil of people's lives and families and the water by the Holy Spirit take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. I thank you, Lord, for the winds of your Holy Spirit carrying this out among the nations and that it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We submit it unto you. And the Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we agree together and bind anything of the enemy right now in Jesus' name that would try to hinder this in any way. We commit to be bound and back off right now. And, Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit move in power. And this will get where it's supposed to and accomplish what it's supposed to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I said earlier in the service, we're recording this for podcasts and videos, so I need to say I've even gotten confused in the numbering of this because this is actually the 24th sermon, but it's part 16, and the reason for that is is because we had to break it down in a smaller increment, so we'd have, for example, part 7B or part 7C, part 7D, and so it's total 24, so that's even confused me and the way that we're doing this. So this is part 16. I guess last week was part 15. But tonight, Lord willing, I plan on finishing this series. And how many would say, Pastor Scott, I did learn some things, some things I did not know in this series. Well, we covered a lot of ground. We've been doing this. I look back out of curiosity. We've been doing this since January of this year, and we're in September. So we've been nine months. We've been looking at um, historic revivals. But there's something to this principle. The Bible says to honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you might live long upon the earth. I think that there's a principle that if we honor the mothers and fathers of the faith, the mothers and fathers of revival, that there's a principle there that it may go well with us and that we might have longevity. I think it brings a blessing on you as you go back and honor these moves of God because we're honoring what God did. And we're honoring the people that God used. And so we're also learning from them. And that's what I'm going to look at tonight. There's some things I think that we need to learn. Now, last week I talked about the Shunammite. You guys remember that? And we talked about make room for the move of God. And so as we talked about making room for the move, you remember how the woman, the woman made a room for Elisha that he could stay there with Gehazi and and as he was there, he said, what can be done for you? It was interesting, if you go back and read that story, that she was down the hall, but whenever he was asking what could be done for her, and Gehazi, I was mentioning, they, she came into the doorway. There was some kind of an open door that she stepped into, and then Elisha, so look this way and give me your best ear. Then Elisha spoke the word of the Lord to her. So let me say this again. She moved into the doorway. 
Everybody say open door. Okay, we're going to look at this tonight. There was an open door, something that opened to her. She stepped in, and then the word came to her, which brought forth a miraculous child into her life. But there was some kind of a door that opened. And what a lot of people have to understand is, is that you can labor and toil. You remember the story where Peter and them, after the Lord had risen, they were laboring out there. They went back to their day jobs, what they had always known. They were out there fishing all night, caught no fish, laboring. Jesus came on the scene, and they, he said, cast a net on the other side. See, what I'm getting at here is that all of a sudden when the Lord stepped in and he began to speak something, it opened up a miracle. And when they cast their net on the other side and obeyed that word, there was a miraculous harvest. Also, this is interesting. The Apostle Paul, a lot of people read Acts chapter 19. They think, well, Paul went into Ephesus. He saw this tremendous revival. It lasted two years. I mean, it was a major move of God, healings and miracles, all these people getting saved. And it planted the church in Ephesus, which was like a hub. It was like a revival church, but it was kind of a hub for the other churches. Major move of God. And people focus on that, but what they don't realize is that Paul had went on three missionary journeys and he had already been through Ephesus and nothing seemed to happen the first time through. This was his second time through Ephesus. And the second time he went through, the Bible says that Paul recognized that some kind of, he wrote this to the Corinthian church. He said, there is an effectual door that is opened unto me and many oppose me. Great opposition to the move of God. But he said there was an effectual door. See, that, that comes from like a word, um, effectual would be like efficacy, like power. Like there's some kind of uh, a door that opened, but a door of great power, like maybe an open heaven and God coming in there. But Paul started seeing something. But what I'm getting at is that Paul recognized that a door had opened. Something opened for him. And last week, we talked about how Elisha had laid on that boy, his eyes on his eyes, hands on his hands, all that. And the first time he laid on him, it didn't seem like the boy was raised, but it did warm him up. But the next time something happened, the boy was raised. And I really feel like God has always moved real powerful in River of Life. This has been a place God's always moved. But I really believe that God has just been warming us up and he's been preparing us. This whole season before us has just been preparation. He's been sowing into his impartation. He's been teaching us. He's been equipping us. He's been doing a deep work to get us ready. And he's about now to lay on us again. And he's going to say, you've been, you've been fishing all night, but now cast your net on the other side. It's going to be like Paul or like that woman, the Shunammite. There's going to be a door that opens. And something will begin to happen that wasn't happening before. It's just something that opens up. The Lord says, I will open a door that no man can shut. There's something that God has to do. You know, we read about these revivals, but there came a point in time where the Lord simply just opened it up and he fell and all this happened. And then we read about it. But it was God that did it. There's no, there's no way we could do that. We can pray and we can believe. In River of Life, we have the word of the Lord. God has promised us that he's going to move like that. He's promised us a revival and a harvest. It's coming. But it's, it's up to him about that timing about it. 
Because Paul went through Ephesus the first time probably thinking, let's see a move of God now, but it wasn't the time. Some things happened. I'm sure people got saved, this, that, and the other. But the second time he came through, that's when all of heaven came down. He stayed for two years. It was, as far as we know, the most powerful move of God in his whole ministry. There's a timing. So let me just dive into this tonight. Just some things. I'm closing out this whole series. And so just to recap, we saw that about 125 years or so, from the days of Wesley and Edwards and Whitfield, all the way through those mid to late 1700s, remember? There was a, and, then, and then it went down, it came back up at Cane Ridge with the Second Great Awakening, kind of went down a little bit, even though we had Charles Finney, but it came back up in the 1857-59, the Third Great Awakening, when we had D.L. Moody. But there was about 125 years there where there was a move that was primarily among the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and of course uh, the Methodists that had recently formed in the revival. And God moved mainly with salvation like an outer court. Then you go past that first veil and go into the holy place. And that broke out when? Early 1900s, really late 1800s, early 1900s, Topeka, Kansas, I believe 1900, January the, they met in Stones Folly Upper Room, baptized the Holy Ghost, and of course it, it ended up at Azusa, which was a hub, a cradle. But from that time, now it moved from just being salvation to what? Being clothed with power, baptizing the Holy Ghost, praying for the sick. See, they didn't have a lot of that before. Not that people didn't get healed, but it just was. Now it was different. And you know what the main difference was? That now they had doctrine to go with it. They were believing for not just to be saved, but they were believing and praying for the baptism and the Holy Ghost, the clothing of power, that we can lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. We can drive out demons. We can speak in other tongues. And they believed it and they pressed in for it. So from 1900, the 20th century, for around maybe 80 years, we had an ebb and a flow of not only salvation now, but power. Remember the revival in the 40s and 50s we looked at? So this carried on into the 80s, and I believe ministries like Kenneth Hagin, Derek Prince, the Argentine Revival, Carlos Anacondia, many of those were kind of a bridge between the, that move of God, and then as we slipped into the 90s, here's what happened. God began to take us out of the, just the holy place into what? The holy of holies. And the glory of God came in during the 90s revivals that is still here. And just like the other revivals, there's been an ebb and a flow but this, it has waned since the 90s, but it's about to have a major upsurge again. And we're going to see the glory flame again in our midst like never before. And the Bible says the end of the age is the harvest. And so we're about to see an incredible harvest of souls, I believe, greater than the 90s. And I want you to think about what I just said. Because Reinhard Bonnke saw millions of people get saved in the 90s. Benny Hinn's ministry saw millions of people. There was millions of people all over the world getting saved. There were, there were at least four million people that came through Brownsville, and I would say at least a million of them got right with God at least. That's conservative. Uh, four million people went through Toronto. Again, major harvest, but guess what? The best harvest is right in front of us. And we saw a major move of God in the 90s, but we're about to see a much greater move, and it's going to be the fullness of all these revivals. There'll be a great harvest of souls. We're going to be clothed in power to see tremendous healings and miracles, deliverances, the gifts at work. 
and the glory of God in our midst. And it's going to be so intense that it's going to prepare us to be a bride ready to meet the Lord in the air. And that's what this last great move is about. It's going to culminate at the coming of the Lord. That's what it's about, okay? So we've looked at all these. They've been really interesting. I love reading about them. But as I close out, I want to look at uh, several different things tonight. But the first one is Laodicea. Without belaboring the point, we've studied the book of Revelation. So you guys know that the seven churches go down from Ephesus was the early church and then all the way down, what, till Laodicea is the last day church. So it's, a, it's different periods of history, okay? Thyatira speaks of like the dark ages and the rise of Roman Catholicism, etc. But then as we move into Laodicea, unfortunately, that's the last day church. Well, keep that in mind that you and I are living in the age of Laodicea, if you will. And you know this. I can't go back and teach on it right now, but you know this. Down through the history, this is where we're at. And this is what Jesus said. Did you know that we always think that there's just four epistles, if you will? But did you know that there's actually seven little letters that Jesus Christ himself penned to the church? Have you ever thought about that? We all think about Paul's epistles. Did you know that these were actually epistles to us from Jesus Christ himself? Think about that. So this was an epistle, if you will, from Jesus Christ himself to us in the last day church. This is what he said. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write this. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I think it's interesting that everything to each epistle is unique to that. It says here, the faithful and true. I think that there's something important re revealed here that in these last days, God is going to expect us that even through great darkness, that we're going to remain faithful to him and that we're going to have a love for the truth. Did everybody catch that? Because the Thessalonians warns us that those that don't love the truth would be given over to a delusion to believe a lie. So we're going to have to be faithful and love truth. And it says this, I know your works, but this is the rebuke of the Lord. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were caught hot or cold. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. And that means spit there means to vomit, implying that it makes him nauseous. So it's interesting here that lukewarmness makes the Lord nauseous. For you say, here's the problem. You say, everybody say the church says. Now let me, let me just point out here that we don't need to just judge ourselves by others. Like we look at other churches and we look at other Christians and we say, well, I'm doing good in comparison with them. We need to look to Jesus and we say, Lord, that you would show me how do you see my life. Help me to be conformed to your image. And that's a whole different realm. So look what it says here. You say about yourself, I'm rich. I have stored up goods. I need nothing. Doesn't that sound like the church today? A lot of big mega ministries, etc. Rich, stored up goods. We don't need anything. We're good. This is a warning for all of us. I'm speaking to River of Life just as much as anybody else here. 
Yet, Jesus said, you do not realize. And Jesus is saying, from my perspective, the way I see you is that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. What is gold refined in the fire? That God puts us through trials and maybe also the baptism in the Holy Ghost, the baptism of fire in our lives. But there's testings and trials that God allows that purify us like gold in the fire. And then he says, that you may be rich. So it's gold refined in the fire that produces the richness. And he says, white garments that you may be dressed that the shame of your nakedness may not appear. In other words, that you'll be covered with white garments. See, the Lord's coming for a bride without spot or blemish. And so he says here that you're wretched, naked, poor, and blind, but there's something here where God is saying, let me give you gold refined in the fire, excuse me, and pure garments, pure garments that will clothe you and that there won't be any impurities, that you'll be without spot or blemish, ready to meet the Lord in the air. Gold refined in the fire, pure garments, that you may be dressed and the shame of your nakedness may not appear. And it says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So your eyes have to be anointed to be able to see. God gives us, he anoints our eyes and ears that we have eyes and ears of the spirit. And then the Lord goes on to say, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So is everybody following me tonight? Look this way. Try not to be distracted by anything. Those that I love, I rebuke and discipline. That goes along with the book of Hebrews, where in Hebrews, the Lord says that I, I discipline my children. Now, we don't like it. Nobody likes to be disciplined by the Lord, okay? But yet, we need it. So the Lord says, those that I love, I will rebuke them and discipline them. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then this is what I was getting to earlier. Listen, he says, verse 20, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and him with me. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow, what a promise. The promise is that there's a door to open that we can have fellowship with the Lord. And then he says, if you will overcome. So what is he referring to here? I believe what the Lord is saying, if I could paraphrase this, is that okay just to kind of paraphrase this? In my opinion, it's the way I see it. I believe the Lord is saying this. Laodicean church, you're going to be living in the last days where perilous times are going to be upon the earth. There's going to be gross darkness. There's going to be a lot of lukewarmness. But if you will let me come in among you and make room for me to come in and open a door for me to come in and fellowship with you, I will begin to send my fire in your midst. I will purify you like gold in the fire. I'll, I'll allow you to go through the testings and trials. I'll correct you where you're off. And if you'll let me, I'll purify your garments. I'll get you ready. 
I will make you a bride without spot or blemish. I will help you to have eyes that can see that you'll be wise virgins with extra oil. I will come in among you and I will help you to be ready so that when I come, you're ready for my coming. But you'll be a people that's living in the last days. But among all the lukewarmness, you're not going to be lukewarm. You're going to be on fire for me. And I will get you ready. And if you will overcome this Laodicean age, here's the great promise for the overcomers of the Laodicean age, that I will give you to reign with me in the kingdom to come, that you'll be on a throne with me. Wow. But I believe that a lot of that has to do with this. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him. So there's something about a door opening. Is everybody seeing this? A door opens for the Lord to step in, revival to come. What was impossible becomes possible. And God begins to do a deep work in us. And he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we've studied this end time or these historic revivals, and here we are in the last days, one of the things that I've seen common in every revival is this. It seems like revival comes when everything seems hopeless. When everything gets dire straits, it seems like there's no other hope. In fact, people may get so discouraged, it drives the intercessors into deep prayer. Well, let me show you that in Ezekiel 37, a very common passage we all know. Ezekiel writes about this experience, this encounter that he had. And he said, all of a sudden, the hand of the Lord was upon me. So he felt God's presence on him really strong. And the Holy Spirit carried him out in the spirit of the Lord and set him down. So he was having some kind of a vision, some kind of an encounter where he was carried away in the spirit in the midst of a valley which was full of dead, dry bones. It says, he caused me to walk around among these bones. And there were very many in an open valley, and they were very dry. So these were bleached, dry bones. And then the Holy Spirit says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel being humble and wise, says, Lord, only you know that. And again, it said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you that you may live. I will lay sinews upon you and you will grow back flesh upon you and I will cover you with skin I will put breath in you so you'll live, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Wow. Talk about prophecy. This is how it works. When you really have heard from God, God's got you among dead, dry bones in an absolutely hopeless situation where there is no possible way in the natural at all. And then God gives you a word, and he says, here's what I say. I say that these bones are going to live again. But you look at them in the natural and think, good, there's no way that this skeleton, all these skeletons, has been dead forever. But the Lord says, speak to it, prophesy over it. This is what I'm saying. 
And so Ezekiel began to prophesy. God told him this. He had the word of the Lord. So he opened his mouth and said, I prophesied as I was commanded. And I prophesied and there was a noise. There was a shaking. All of a sudden, bones began to come together, bone to bone. When I looked, the sinews and the flesh began to grow upon them. That was like the joints, the ligaments. Muscle began to appear. And then he says, and then skin began to cover them. But yet, they were laying there like a corpse. So this first time was almost like when Elisha laid on the boy the first time. Warmed him up, but they still weren't resurrected yet. And so then the Lord said to him, Now, you've got a bunch of corpses here. They've got skin on them, but there's no breath in them. So now I want you to prophesy again. And I want you to prophesy to the wind Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath. Breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood up on their feet. Look at this, an exceeding great army. Everybody catch that? So you end up going from a valley of skeletons to now an exceeding army? I think sometimes we read over these things and we really don't think about how amazing this really is. God is saying to us, River of Life, you may look out at the landscape of things right now and all you see is dead bones, but the Lord says, I see a major revival and I see a harvest of souls and I see life coming in to the dead. I will, that's what revival is. I will raise the dead. There are spiritually dead people. There are those that are backslid, churches that are dead, ministries that have died. And the Lord says, I'm going to breathe on them again. And I will raise them back up from the dead, so to speak, into an exceedingly great army in me. We have to see it the way God sees it. See, God sees it so different than us. Just like Jesus stood on the shore, said, cast a net on the other side of the boat. You know as well as I do that they probably didn't recognize him at first. And Peter and others that have fished their whole life, their parents had fished their whole life. This was their family business, probably looked at each other and thought, who is the smart aleck on the shore that's, that's telling us to do this because we've been fishing all night. We know what we're doing. We're professionals. And he thinks that if we just cast it a few feet over here, that we're going to catch a great catch or something, you know. But they did it. It was like that second breath that came in and created a supernatural thing, a supernatural harvest, a door, if you will, that only God could open, something only God could do. And we know many times in the scriptures when we read that we can see this pattern, Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and what? Die. It remains a single seed, but if it dies, it will produce a harvest, right? Because it's got to go in there. It's got to die. Roots form. The grain comes. In the same way, God came into a situation where you've got the nation of Israel. God had told Abraham, they're going to end up in captivity for a time, but I will rescue them. I will deliver them. 
And they're, they're there in Egypt. And when you look at their situation, that they're slaves, they're in bondage to the most powerful nation on the planet at the time with the strongest military, they're enslaved there. It was an impossible situation. Everybody say impossible. Yet, God said, that's what you see, but here's what I see. And God speaks the breath of God, the prophecy he says, I will deliver them out of this. And he made the impossible become possible. And then he says, I'm going to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. But what happens many times? We get this prophecy. We're going to a land of milk and honey. We come out under the blood of the lamb. We go through the waters of the Red Sea of baptism. We have our encounter with God at Sinai, like a shaking, a great revival. And here we are, and we enter into the exact opposite of what God said he would do, a desert. But yet we're being tested. God laid on them the first time, so to speak. Elisha laid on that boy when they were in Egypt, and he was warming them up. He was giving them signs and wonders and moving in their midst. Then he gets off of them and watches them and tests them for a little bit. When the fullness of time came, of course, God wanted them just to go straight way into it. He didn't plan on the 40 years. But when the fullness of time came, it was like the Lord laid on, on that boy again, so to speak. Now a supernatural door opened. It's time. Everybody say the fullness of time. When it's God's time. How many have read in the scriptures where it says there's an appointed time to favor Zion? There's a time. And see, we've got the word of the Lord, just as many others in the scriptures have had. And God's laid on us before. He's warmed us up. He's touched us. He's breathed on us. But there'll come an appointed time, a fullness of time, when something opens in the spirit realm and the power of God comes and the impossible becomes possible. Now, all of a sudden, what he said he would do will be fulfilled. See, the way faith works is this. God gives us a word, yet we don't see it. We don't feel it. We don't have it yet. But, but that word is just like when somebody writes you a check. You don't have the cash, but you have the check. And so God puts it in your hand. This is his word. It's a substance of things hoped for. It's a substance. Faith is the, it's the check. God, God has given us his word. We stand on this word, we believe it, we, we expect it, we pray into it, we fast into it, we're speaking faith words, we know it's coming, and in the fullness of time, just like cashing a check, the check is replaced with the cash, it's here, it's time, you step into it. You step into the door. And here's an interesting, I studied out these old revivals. And I've gone to some of these historic places and I can tell you that you can still sense the Lord there. And this is a really neat scripture to me because remember Elisha was the one that wanted a double portion of what Elijah had. And, and Elijah raised the dead. And everything that Elisha did, there was a, you go back and read it, there was twice. Everything that he did happened twice. So Elijah saw one miracle, Elisha would see a double miracle. Yet, when Elisha died, he had only seen one boy raised. But here's the interesting thing. 2 Kings 18, 21, 
It says this, so Elisha died and they buried him. Now Moabite raiders would enter the land in the spring and they were burying a man. They saw raiders, so they threw the man quickly. So instead of digging a grave for him properly, they saw raiders coming. So they just threw him into the tomb of Elisha. <laughs> Listen to this. When the man, the dead man touched Elisha's bones, he came back to life and stood on his feet. There was that second, there was that double portion. There was still something in those bones. How many want such a bone-soaking anointing? <laughs> it goes down into your very bones to walk in the power of God and see these, uh, these old revivals that have happened in times past. I've physically gone to some of these geographic locations and I've stood there with my feet and you, just like Elisha's bones, you know, you can still sense something there, like a life from the dead. You can still sense a revival anointing, a revival atmosphere there. And so my question is this. We've read about these historic revivals, but yet we look at things today in the church, in the world. We're in September of 2022. We look at it, we see gross darkness, we see all these end-time prophecies coming to pass, we see a lot of deception. And you know what you're looking at? You're looking at dead bones, a valley of dead, dry bones. You look at it and you can get discouraged. Yet the Lord says, I will breathe again and I will raise the dead and I will bring these, these bones together and I will give you a supernatural harvest I will save people that others thought would never be saved. And I will turn them into a great army for me that they will in turn win many souls. God steps into these impossible situations. Why does he do it? You know, I wondered about this for a really long time. And I think maybe I've got a little bit of understanding, maybe. I had wondered why in the scriptures that it seems like God waits until there's a desperate cry. I've wondered about it. You know, even in, before Jesus actually comes to the nation of Israel on the Mount of Olives, it gets to the point to where they're going to be annihilated. The, the nations of the earth come and there's this desperate cry. And God seems to always wait until that desperate cry before. And as I was looking through the story about Babylon and I saw how Israel, Judah, Benjamin, the southern tribes had backslid. They got so far from God. I mean, they had all this stuff in the temple. They were burning incense on every rooftop. The, every abomination that you could imagine, everything God said don't do, they were doing. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, would just weep over this, calling them to repentance. They abuse him. And I wondered, I was like, but God showed me something, see? If God would have tried to come in and fix this by bringing a move of God into that, you know as well as I do that there would have been some kind of an unholy mixture, some kind of a weirdness where they had the things of God, but yet they also still had the pagan. But see, here's, let me give you this example. Let's say that you had a plate of food and it was full of E. coli and bacteria food poisoning and so you take three-fourths of that and scrape it off your plate 
and you go get all this fresh, healthy food and all that and dump it on top of some that still has food poisoning in it. You eat that plate, what's still going to happen? It's a mixture. And there's a scripture in there. It might be in the book of Jeremiah, I don't remember, but the Lord talked about he's going to wipe the plate completely clean. Sometimes we wonder, why is it that God is waiting? Why does it seem like he's delaying? Maybe because just like the plate, sometimes he's got to let things get all the way down to a really low point where he's wiped the plate completely clean. And now he's going to send an altogether new move on a different foundation that's of him. Does that make sense? Instead of trying to move into something that's messed up and there being a mixture, he's going to let that kind of be cleared out. And now he's going to step into something brand new from the Lord that's powerful in him. Hopefully that makes sense. But God always steps into these impossible situations. So let me give you a few things I wanted to touch on and then I'm going to close out. As I was looking through this, I've noticed that every time God has sent a revival, man has always ended up messing it up. Is anybody surprised by that? It's kind of like the people laugh at it, but it's true. It's kind of like when I start talking about, you know that the Antichrist is going to be a politician, right? Does that really surprise anybody? No. In the same way, it shouldn't surprise us that every time God has done something, it began in the spirit. Man came in and messed it up. So how did man mess it up? By trying to control it? Turn it into a man-made denomination? Appoint man-made leaders that God didn't appoint? Make it more about just educating people rather than the power of God still working in our midst? And it becomes just a religious thing. So as God pours out his spirit in River of Life, we're going to have to resist the temptations that have, you know, people before us have succumbed to. We're going to have to resist the temptations to try to control things or make it into something man-made or use it in that way. Let's keep our hands off of it and just let God do what he wants to do. It's just like a surfer riding the wave. You're not really telling the wave what to do. You're just cooperating with the wave. You're just writing what it's doing. Let God do what he wants to do. Now, one of the things that happened was as God poured out his spirit in the first great awakening, Edwards and then Wesley and, and you know, John and Charles Wesley came here. Whitfield was preaching. John Wesley and his brother began to see all these people getting saved, so they formed the Methodist movement. The Methodists got the name because of methodology. And John Wesley was, was very meticulous. You know, he's a very disciplined person. Do this, do that, be diligent, be faithful, be hardworking. There was a method to everything. And John Wesley had such a brilliant mind. Much of our systematic theology we have today goes back to a lot of what he taught. But in that... The Methodists seemed to do really good. I mean, they, they followed the Lord after the first great awakening. They formed circuit riders that went out on horseback and won many to the Lord. And then there was the second great awakening and the Methodists were right in the middle of it. And God really touched them and it, it started what we know as camp meetings throughout the nation as churches gathered together, much like what we're about to do. 
then it waned a little bit more, and then it came back up again in the, the days of Jeremiah Lempier, Fuller Street, upstate New York, the prayer meetings, the great revival of 1857 through 59. D.L. Moody's ministry birthed during that time. And they were doing really good. Now, here's what happened. I want everybody to get this. The Methodists, though, began to become more of a denomination by this time. And there were some that really had a hunger and a passion for holiness. And so they began to kind of split off of the mainstream Methodist church in pursuit of holiness. Now, granted, some of this was probably legalistic, but their heart was in the right place to be holy. I mean, it was God does love holiness. I'm not talking about legalism, but I am talking about holiness. People should see our lives and see something radically different. Now, it was among the holiness movement that carried over into the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was among that group of people, the holiness people, that the Holy Spirit fell. See, William Seymour was of the holiness movement. And Azusa Street, it was the perfect marriage between Pentecost and holiness coming together it was like a beautiful marriage as it came together because it became known as Pentecostal holiness. But how many knows to really walk in the power of God, we have to be a holy people. How many understand what I'm, what I'm saying with this? Holiness. Now, I know that looking back on it, some of that was legalistic, and I know some of it actually was even problematic. But yet... It was something that was of God. But here's the interesting thing. Even among the group of holiness, some of them did not accept Pentecost and rejected Pentecost. Isn't that interesting? In fact, if I remember correctly, the group of people William Seymour tried to pastor when he first went to L.A. and preached, there was a holiness church, but they rejected Acts chapter 2 that he preached. So he ends up on Bonnie Bray Street. But as we had Pentecostal holiness that went all the way through the early to mid-1900s, the revival of the 40s and 50s, a lot of that was among the Pentecostal holiness group. And there was a time, I'm telling you guys about your roots, your heritage, whether you know it or not. Holiness and Pentecost is what our roots are. But yet today, I'm saying this because God's going to have to breathe on these dead bones. Today, among many places that used to be Pentecostal, and their history was holiness. Now, unfortunately, you don't hear tongues, you don't see the gifts in operation, and you do not see holiness. They've lost something. But yet God's going to breathe again. Okay. God is looking for a people that can carry his power. But for us to really walk in the power of God, I mean really walk in it, to see what they saw back in the early years, we're also going to have to understand that God is looking for a holy people. And I know that people know this, but holiness does affect our lifestyle. What company do we keep? What type of conversations do we participate in? 
Where do we spend our time? Yeah, I was shocked and, <clears throat> and grieved. I'm going to be really careful what I say. I need to be really careful with this. But my wife and I, as revival began to wane, we increasingly felt like a fish out of water. We were trying to connect with the right people. But yet, my wife will remember some of this. As revival began to wane here in this region that we live, we tried to connect to a particular denomination, hoping that maybe we could form some kind of an alliance. And I grew up around in this denomination. But yet, she'll tell you, anything to do with holiness, Pentecost, revival, the power of God, I couldn't believe it. I, it shocked me. But anything that I said to do with that was belittled by them, wasn't it, Sandy? They downplayed me. They tried to make me feel stupid. She kept going to the restroom, and I was wondering what in the world. I didn't think about the time because these people were making the conversation unnecessarily awkward and tense. And I'm having to be drilled, and they wanted me to. Um, I, I'm trying to be careful how I say everything. But they wanted me to be like a seeker-sensitive type of pastor. Basically, remember, they would tell me to go coach a soccer team and just get all these people to come. And they wanted me to do what a lot of these seeker-sensitive churches do. And I said, okay, here's the thing. What about the power of God? And they kept downplaying everything I said. And she kept going to the restroom. I didn't know what she was doing. But later on when we got in the car, she looked at me, and they had given us such a hard time about anything to do with holiness, revival, Pentecost, tongues, anything like that. She looked at me and was kind of crying, and she said, man, I don't want anything to do with those people. And I said, well, I don't either. And so we were like a fish out of water. What do we do? Who, who do we connect with? And I remember that, there was a, finally a group. I thought, well, some of these have roots back at different 90s revivals. And I'm, again, I'm trying to be really careful what I say. These were leaders, but the worldliness, the language, the things that was used, the ungodliness was shocking. We just looked at each other and left, and we were kind of like the same thing again. She's looking at me, and we're like, we don't want to associate with this. If I told you what was said and the conversations and what you, you would not believe what was actually said in these conversations. But for the sake of keeping this pulpit holy, I'm not going to repeat it. And so I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the openness to alcohol, profanity, and worldliness. And we just felt like a fish out of water. And I finally went to a particular leader at some point try to talk about my plight my situation but they didn't it did for some reason didn't resonate it was just kind of a waste of this person's time i guess but but i began to really cry out to god i said lord i don't know what to do i don't know who to connect with anymore please help me and i i believe the lord heard that because i was very sincere about it and that's when god began to bring now we have people that we're connected with that are precious like faith. But isn't it sad that God had to kind of go pretty far distance to connect me with those type of people and bring us together with them? That's sad. 
But God began to connect us with people of precious like faith. And let me tell you, I'm concerned about where things are, but if people want revival, and I know there's even some places that are saying, well, this is revival or whatever, okay. But my concern is, is this. It seems to me like the fruit I've seen among a lot of them is more and more worldliness. Let me just say this. If it's a true revival, people are going to be getting more and more holy, not more and more worldly. There's going to be less profanity. People are going to be dumping the alcohol down the drain, not buying it and filling up their refrigerator with it. You understand? So I've just been totally shocked. I, so this is the Laodicean age. There's, there's some kind of a strange deception in this age. And so as we've stayed the course, God has allowed us to finally connect with the right people. But I thought about, as I went down to Cambridge, for example, and I studied out that revival, I thought about the fact that the Cambridge revival was a Presbyterian church. Did everybody just hear what I said? Barton Stone, James McGreedy were Presbyterian ministers. And the other churches that joined with them were Baptist. And, of course, the newly formed Methodist, which was basically spirit-filled, if you will. I'm not saying all of them spoke in tongues. That doctrine wasn't there yet, but they were, they were on fire. But Cambridge happened among the Presbyterian and the Baptist. And when I was out there, I couldn't help but think, and I say this in love to the Presbyterians and the Baptist, but I couldn't help but think, like out in the field there at Cambridge, like a menorah or like a torch that was lit that God gave them that they have walked away from on their own accord. And even in many of these places today, the very revival that was in their history, their history, would be maligned today by them. Rejected. Don't want it. Isn't that sad? How, do, how does it get to this place? I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just trying to show you that even with the Pentecostal holiness, things have been forsaken. But here's the good news. God is a God of restoration. Can these dry bones live again, river of life? Can they? Can God raise the dead? Can he move again? Of course he can. And I believe God is about to breathe on us again, just like Elisha. We look at these dead, dry bones. But let me tell you, God says, I see an army that's going to come up out of this. And it's just like in the days of Amos. Remember, he said there would be a famine, but not a famine of bread and water, but a famine of what? The word of the Lord. Many have thought, well, maybe that's in the last days. Bibles wouldn't be printed or whatever. Well, that could be the case. But it's not just that. It's a famine of the actual preaching. What is God saying to us? There came a point in time after the 90s revivals that man tried to come in and use it. See, I've wondered about this too. You remember last week I talked about from the boomer generation, then my generation, Generation X, 
to the millennial generation, something was lost. You know what I think? Uh, somebody made me give an opinion. He said, Pastor Scott, I want you to tell me what do you think? What's your opinion? I could be wrong, but this is just my opinion. I think after the 90s revivals, I think that the movement that is coined as seeker-sensitive type movement, I think that that's what made it happen because we were preaching the whole counsel of God, preaching with fire, preaching holiness. People were tearing at the altars to be baptized in the Holy Ghost, and, and there was the laying on of hands. There was the, the word of God being preached and the power of the Holy Ghost. And they said that we're going to stop preaching like that, and now we're going to do motivational speeches. We're going to stop letting the Holy Spirit move in power and put that in a back room somewhere, which, of course, is going to disappear. And now it's going to be about programs and entertainment. Hello? Look at the fruit of it. From the 90s revivals, you have this gap there where something was lost. And now the generation that didn't have it, they, think about it. What has God given us as his church? He's given us his word and his spirit if you're going to do away with the word and just preach watered down messages to make people feel good and you're going to get rid of the holy spirit and just entertain people this is what happens you get a bunch of people that really don't know the lord it's like the book of judges they there was a generation that came up that did not know the Lord and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Would anybody argue with me that that's exactly what we're looking at? That's what I think that's what happened. So here we are in this situation. God is about to step into this. Just like Ezekiel. Here we are walking among the, the dry bones and we're looking at dead, dry places and we're thinking man can these bones ever live again and god's about to breathe on them again but it's going to be him and let me give a couple more things before i close out be careful one of the things that stuck out to me as i studied these revivals was be careful with controlling people male or female be careful with controlling people these Jezebel people, think about Evan Roberts. How many remember that? Mighty man of God, but ended up, what? Being neutralized by Jezebel spirit for the rest of his life, unfortunately. And I think about William Seymour. When I was there at Bonnie Bray Street, and I spent time with Sister Soul, and she was the lady that talked to my wife and I about all the history of it, the inside knowledge and all that. And she was saying William Seymour basically died of a broken heart and she said he was rejected because of the segregation laws of that time. So he was rejected because he was black, number one. Then he went through a second rejection because he was Pentecostal in a time that people did not accept it at all. Not that they accept it that much today, but they really didn't accept it then. But then came Claire Lum and the whole thing where she took the newsletter and stole the mailing list. But here's the thing I want to warn you about. This may be more for leaders than it is necessarily for everybody here. But leadership really has to prayerfully be careful who you entrust important things to. Because some people seem so sweet and wonderful till you give them about that much power. 
that much power and they can't help but abuse it and it's a jack on the hide thing they go crazy and i think about this lady god bless her she's i'm sure she's in heaven and she's repented and we're all going to meet her and we all love her but she was really used of the devil let this be a warning because she was the one and her official stance was this william seymour was going to marry jenny moore and this lady clara lum was like well here we are in the latter rain revival night and day holy ghost revival this is no time for you to be getting married well number one who do you think you are to be telling a man of god if he's going to get married or not talk about controlling hello a jezebel spirit And some have speculated, I know she was white, he was black. There was no way that that could possibly be the case at the time for sure. But yet there may have been that, you know, his affections was on somebody else and she was jealous. I'm sure that there was probably something to that. But she, a lot of times these controlling people are very possessive of you and your time. And when you do something they don't want you to do, they'll turn on you. So she takes the whole newsletter and leaves and if i remember the story correctly she went from la up north into the more the oregon area john g lake had a real powerful ministry there remember the healing rooms and all of that there was a move of god there she went there with it but because she took that mailing list there was no more newsletters sent out people thought the revival was over and they quit coming and it killed the move of god and Sister Soul told us, said, you know, that was the third great wound to William Seymour. It broke his heart, and it, he felt rejected through that whole thing. And she said eventually he died, and she, they felt he died of a broken heart because of all that. And I would add to that, and maybe it was because of, of the Jim Crow laws, but William Seymour lived for many years after that revival, yet when he would go places where there was a gathering of people, they never acknowledged him in the congregation. See, right now, today, of course, it's 2022. If William Seymour was sitting out here, I would say, would you stand, brother? I want to honor you for what, how God used you. Now, I let him out of the pulpit. But they didn't even recognize him. They didn't ask him to sit on the platform. And he ended up just dying of a broken heart. And I know his wife tried to keep things going. You know, Sandy and I, you may remember this, but we met a precious couple years ago back when, it wasn't long after we got married, you know, but they came to this area and he was one of the oldest living men alive at that time. I don't know if any of you guys were even around back then. Do you remember this, Brianna? He was, is it that black guy and his daughter that was there? Anyway, they had the power of attorney of the Azusa Street Revival. And I believe he was a child or something during that time. There was a story behind it. And they were there talking about Pentecost. And this precious man of God could still get around. He was like a hundred and he was something like a hundred and six. He could still get around and preach, could still read the Bible. I mean, it was just amazing to me. And he prayed with us. It was really powerful. It was special. But anyway, just be careful with who you entrust with important things. Take time to get to know people and pray about it. I just had a dear pastor friend of mine that I'm very close to. I love him deeply. 
we have a strong relationship that goes back many years and he's quite a bit older than me and he's always been kind of a spiritual father and i just recently met with him maybe a month ago and this is the type of stuff okay i'm sharing this with you guys and you have no idea who i'm talking about okay so i'll be really careful what i say but he was sharing with me and normally i go there to really receive but as we were talking i felt like god had sent me there to minister to him and he had a broken heart he had just been through a major betrayal in the church and somebody that you know he poured his life into him and loved him and got up i don't want to get into it but betrayed him got up middle of a service yelling and screaming about nothing took a bunch of people out of the church left the church um, and he said this he said there was a row of younger people that had just gotten saved and all of them followed those people out and he said you know what somebody's going to give an account for that you got to be careful because he told me he said those people had worked in a particular area in the church and sure enough eventually they rose up and caused a lot of damage a lot of hurt be careful who you entrust with things some of them later on can be used of the devil my wife and i've seen it over and over unfortunately even people that you never would have thought in a million years so be careful and remember this count the cost I'm about to pray with everybody tonight. I feel just a tremendous anointing this week, and I want to pray with you. But River of Life, please hear me and look this way, and don't, don't let this part of the sermon pass you by. Count the cost. We want a move of God. Be ready for the fact that the world, some, some of the world will hate the move of God, and you better be ready for the religious Pharisees that will hate the move of God. Are y'all ready for it? Have you counted the cost? Are you okay with being ridiculed by the religious Pharisees? I am. You know, God puts you through enough stuff when you've been in the ministry for decades that you pretty much get to the point that you just don't care at all anymore. I mean, I don't know how it happens. People say that, and they don't mean it, but it actually, when you're in the ministry, it actually happens to you. I could leave out here today, and somebody just hate my guts, cuss me out, threaten me, this, that, and the other. And I would laugh about it when I got home. I just don't care. That's the way you got to be because trust me, it's out there. And whenever you start seeing a move of God, the religious Pharisees will rise up. Another, the last thing I noticed as I studied this is God seems to always move the most powerful among the humble, the poor, and the desperate. Have you noticed that? Why do you think that many times God would move even among the young people? Because the older crowd, many of them were set <clears throat> in their religious ways. And they felt like they were fine like they are. But the younger generation were just hungry for God. Many times God will move among the young like that. But also I looked at different revivals. For example, Azusa is probably most noticeable in this. But God moved what among the poor? And people that were willing to go to that humble place among the poor and the desperate, that's where God moved the most mightily. So this is the last couple of scriptures I want to read, and then we're going to pray for people tonight. Matthew 25. 
this great revival that's about to happen, there will be a glory that comes in and a fear of God. Everybody say the fear of the Lord. God is going to move mightily with the fear of God again. And this fear of God is so necessary because it's going to cause people to repent and his glory is going to be so intense that people that want to play games with unrepentant sin and get into the glory and then continue in unrepentant sin, they come back into the glory. I fear for those people's very lives because the glory is going to be so intense that they're playing with something that could kill them here. How many knows when the glory comes in, God's expecting us to repent and be a holy people, amen? So let me read this to you. The kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins. Notice it didn't say five virgins and five harlots. These are all God's people who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ as a thief in the night. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish, they took their lamps, but they took no oil. Now, how in the world is your lamp going to keep burning through the night if you don't have the oil? But the wise took also extra jars of oil. Everybody say extra oil. While the bridegroom delayed, they all rested and slept. Notice that all of them slept. That's a warning right there. We need to be watching and praying, okay? But at midnight, there was a cry. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Look at this, like a thief in the night. The shout, the blast of the shofar. It's a sudden thing. The Lord comes. And it says, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish ones said to the wise, hey, give us some of your oil. For our lamps have gone out. But the wise answered, no, lest there not be enough for us and you. So gather, but rather go to those who sell it and buy for yourselves some extra oil. But while they were gone, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in to meet him at the wedding banquet. The door was shut. There's something about doors being open and doors being shut in this sermon tonight. Have you noticed that? It was over now. The door shut. Afterward, the other virgins, the five foolish, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You know, you want to know what the extra oil is? It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in these last days. And I'll tell you what's concerning to me. God is pouring out his Spirit, and there's places where there's extra oil being poured out, and the five wise virgins are going to those places, getting filled with extra oil, and the five foolish ones are over there going, I wonder if that's really God or the devil. The Lord's going to come at a time that we don't expect it. And I think about the scripture, it says he's coming for a bride without spot or blemish. Look at this, Ephesians 5, 22, wives, be submissive to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head and savior of the church, which is his body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Also, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. 
Look at this, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That's part of what was missing from that boomer generation to the millennial was the type of preaching that washes people with the water of the word. The type of preaching that convicts sin and has people come down to an altar and repent of their sin and they're washed. Does everybody hear what I'm saying? That he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. So the Lord is coming for wise virgins that are without spot or blemish, that are filled with extra oil, that are looking for him. They've made themselves ready. There's an interesting parable I've read to you guys, and people can look this parable up for themselves. It's the parable of the wedding feast. And in this parable, people were invited to the wedding feast, and there were some that got in that did not have the right clothing on. And so others were, they, the master, the bridegroom said, hey, what are you doing here? You're not dressed right. And so they sent some people to remove them out to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, most people read that and think that it has to do with heaven and hell. And they think, well, you know, the people were thrown into hell. Well, let's think about this for a moment. Go back and read this parable for yourself and think about this for a moment. Do you think that somebody that's a heathen is going to die and accidentally get in heaven? Oops. <laughs> How'd you get here? <laughs> think about it for me. Read the parable and remember I said that. Do you think that the angels are going to take them by mistake? They get in the pearly gates, right? And they, they're there and... And Jesus said, hey, how did you get here? And the angels, he looks at the angels, right? You're fired, you know, how'd you, what'd you get him in here for? Now, that's not what this is talking about. Like an oops, they got into heaven and they're not supposed to be here. What this is talking about is this. There's gonna be some kind of a differentiation here between those that are gonna be at the marriage supper of the lamb. That's like a special thing apart from those that were not ready for it. Does this make sense? I wonder about that. I wonder, I'm just asking, are there going to be people even that made it to heaven by the skin of their teeth? I mean, they, they just barely got in, and they, they were not overcomers, and maybe there's a differentiation even there about who's going to be invited to the marriage supper and who's not. I wonder, I wonder about that. Or could that also be a question of this right here? There were 10 virgins. Five of them were at the marriage supper. And five of them were still God's people, but they were not allowed to be at it because they were not ready. I wonder about that. Go back and read that parable for yourself and wonder about that and ask the Lord to show you. What is that referring to? But I will say this. There is some type of a differentiation made there in, among God's people, not the heathen, God's people, about who's going to be at the marriage supper and who's not. And we see that in various parables. And I know, River of Life, you feel this way, but I want to be among the people 
that is a bride without spot or blemish. I want to be among those that have a fear of God, that live holy before him, that have not backslidden and gotten into all this worldliness. I want to be among those that are wise virgins with extra oil filled with the Spirit that's right in the middle of revival, ready to meet the Lord when he comes. How many feel that way tonight? And I know you do. And so the Lord's coming for that bride without spot or blemish. So I just say this to those that may be watching or listening. Please make sure that you really know the Lord. Because the warning in Matthew 7.21 was this. Read it for yourself. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied, we prayed for the sick, they were healed, we cast out demons. You can't do those things if you're not among God's people. Understand that. These were religious people that called him Lord and were participating in activity that is of the church. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. You know what that means? He said, depart from me, he throws them out. And he says, I never really had a relationship with you. And he says, you lived in unrepentant sin. Let that be a warning. I, I have a healthy fear of God in my life. I want to know the Lord for myself. I'm not trying to ride your salvation. You're not trying to ride my salvation. I want to know him for myself. And I want to live a holy life in the fear of God, ready when he comes, that I'm not going to be off into some worldliness or some weird thing that he comes suddenly like a thief. And here I am like one of these foolish virgins knocking on heaven's door saying, Lord, you forgot me. There's going to be people like that. They're going to be praying that's knocking on heaven's door. The door's shut. Lord, you forgot. Please, what about me? And it's already over. They're going to be stuck down here during this time known as the great tribulation time. And if they endure all the way through it and make it to the other side, they're either going to be martyred or maybe they'll survive off grid. But they're going, to, they're going to be saved in the end if they endure, but they're going to have to go through some very difficult times. And I know you feel like I do. That's not going to be me. How many remember preaching like this? Seriously, even those that grew up maybe Baptist, you remember preaching that put a fear of God in you. You remember that? And they talked about being ready for the rapture. I remember as a kid, I remember one time, we all have this story probably. I was taking a nap or something. I woke up and everybody was gone. Nobody told me they were leaving. I was probably maybe 12 when we were living in Kingston. And I remember my parents were gone, my brothers were gone. And I don't know what I was thinking, that they would make the rapture before me or anything, you know. But anyway, everybody was gone. I mean, I come out, <laughs> I come out, man, and I thought, I thought I'd done missed the rapture. I thought, dear God, and I was scared half to death. I thought, man, the, the mark of the beast is coming, right? The Antichrist is coming. But, you know, there was a time that there was a healthy fear of God in the church that people thought about that. I had enough sense about me. I got away from God later on, you know, in my high school years, really bad. Thank God for praying parents. I ended up coming back to the Lord. Thank God. But I was far from God. But even though I was away from God, and if I would have died, I probably would have split hell wide open. I was living in sin. Even though that was the case, 
I, I had enough of church in me that I was scared to die like that. There was some of the places I went where people were doing some hard drugs and I was scared to take a bad trip and die to get, I never got involved in that stuff because I was scared I would die and I knew where I would go. I had enough of church in me and see, that's what's been lost. There needs to be something from the pulpit and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of, of sin in regard to righteousness, the conviction of the Holy Ghost, the word of God preached in such a way that people have that healthy fear in them that they know that they better not play games with the Holy God because he's not playing. He's not going to play people's little games. They're little hypocrite games where they want to you know, have him and go to heaven but live like they want. He's not going to play that. Those people aren't going to make heaven. So, Lord, as we close this out tonight, I thank you for your word. Let this be sealed in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be a bride without spot or blemish, wise virgins with extra oil. And, Lord, I pray in these latter days, we know, Lord, that you're about to open up revival. Lord, we ask you, breathe on these dead bones again, Lord. Let there be an army emerge out of this death and dryness that we see, Lord. Let there be a mighty move of God that saves to the uttermost, that produces tremendous healings and miracles, that sets people free from what the devil's had in their life, Lord, that baptizes in the Holy Ghost and with fire, and Lord, raises up people that will be an army of, of, of warriors for you that will, men, that will win many souls for the kingdom of God and operate in the power of God. Lord, raise up an army of intercessors and warriors and evangelists those, Lord, that are going to be used in an awesome way in this revival. Let it come. I feel it. I feel it all the way down to my bones. I know, Lord, that you're about to move. You've laid upon us once, but you're about to lay on us again. There's about to be a door that opens. The net's going to be cast on the other side at the fullness of time. It's about to happen. And, Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to pray tonight. I had, a, I had a powerful encounter with the Lord this week. God touched me. I feel really different after that. Something happened. Now I want to pray for people tonight. But after I pray for you, I want you to be used as an intercessor too and let God pray through you. How many want to see your loved ones come to know the Lord? I mean, really repent. I believe God is about to pour out his spirit in such a way that we're going to start seeing things like this. He has some kind of a door for river of life. I'm just telling you that we have the word of the Lord, but there's some type of a door that's going to open the spirit realm. It's something you're not going to see with your natural eye, but there's a door that's going to open. And this door that opens is going to have to do with stepping out of here into a different location. And as that opens, there's going to be a major move of God and a harvest of souls. And this was the word of the Lord, even going back years ago, a prophetic individual that's, that's been used mightily in my, my life, never remember. He told me, he said, you're going to go from your house, because we were meeting there, to a location. He described this place. He said, from here, you'll go to a bigger place. But hear me, River of Life, when we get to that place, he said that God is, when you get there, there's going to be an intense move of the Holy Spirit that's connected to end-time prophecy. And he said there will be a, a supernatural harvest of souls. It'll be a season of rebuilding 
and God will give provision. It's about to happen. God's about to do it, but we got to be patient. It's like I've been talking about faith and patience. These things are upon us, but we got to pray it through and have faith. All right, I want to just put on some worship, and if we could maybe go to a screen or whatever.